The wealthmanagement.com Advisor Innovations Podcast is sponsored by LPL. As financial advice continues to evolve, LPL is at the forefront. Whether it's growing your RIA or building an independent practice, advisors can pick the business model, services, technology, and product mix that best meets their clients' needs. As a top wealth management firm, 100% dedicated to advisor success, LPL looks forward to learning how they can help you build your tomorrow today. For more information and show notes, visit go.lpl.com backslash advisor innovation. That's go.lpl.com backslash advisor innovation. Thanks for joining us, everyone. My name is David Armstrong. This is the Advisor Innovations Podcast, where I get a chance to speak to folks in the investment advisory world that are pushing the industry in new and innovative directions. And today's guest has certainly done that, Jeffrey Gitterman. Jeffrey is the founder of Gitterman Wealth Management in Manhattan, a real advisor advocate for ESG investing, and also the winner of the RIA Thought Leader of the Year Award at our 2018 WealthManagement.com Industry Awards. Jeff, thanks very much for being with us. Dave, thanks for having me. Real pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, the judges were really impressed with your work around ESG, particularly the smart model portfolios that you've put together and some of the work that you've done with the Sustainable Investing Conference held each year. And we'll get to each of those things. I want to talk about all of that. But first, for folks who don't know you as well or are not as familiar with your firm, give us the background on Gitterman Wealth Management. When did you start? Why did you start? You had a kind of an interesting niche at the very beginning, correct? Yeah. So I've been doing this since around 1990, uh, a couple of years now and basically started in the college professor marketplace in New Jersey. I was very fortunate to have Donald Wildman, who ran a target marketing firm and actually is still in the industry 30 years later teaching, do a target market course in our firm. And my profile came out that I should work with faculty and professors. And I was the only one of 40 agents in that room that listened to the guidance that he gave and grew the biggest firm of the 40 people that were in there. So I I credit a lot of that back to that early meeting with him and started working with college professors. And it's been probably the most rewarding space that I could have been in because I could meet five or six clients in a day on the same campus. So I can run many more appointments than the average person could run. And I would meet an expert in a different space all day long, a psychology professor, science professor, math professor. I just learned so much along the way and and really developed, at this point, we have about 5,000 college professors as clients of the firm. And how does that work? Was it just a way of mapping kind of your personality onto a client profile and matching up where maybe you would fit best in yeah, yeah, it was a psychological profile test that everyone went through, and then it matched up your personality and your selling style with the best target audience. I was the only one that got professors, so it wasn't like you know there were three canned answers and he was mm-hmm. making a few bucks to just spin a, a dial. Yeah. Everyone got a very customized view, and but no one else listened, oddly. Literally not one of the other 39 people tried to market from that day forward to the group that it was recommended that they should work with. Interesting. Um, Quite fascinating. Yeah. But we actually became a pension provider. So this was in 1990 and 1996, we became a pension provider in the New Jersey college pension market. So we have a slot in the 32 state community colleges in New Jersey and that's allowed us to, you know, build a, a fairly substantial firm. Yeah. And now you're at about a little over half a billion dollars in assets? Well, we are on the custodial side, but if you take the whole firm, we're about $1.3 billion uh, okay. under advisement. 
Okay. Um, and that includes maybe some of the sub-advisory work you do with other Yes, it includes that as well as the 700 millimits in the pension in, in New pension. Jersey. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. What from there, when did the move towards ESG or the attraction to ESG investing strategies as your thing began? How did you stumble across it? How did you come across it, learn about it? And when did you know that was the way that you wanted to go? So I, I had written a book called Beyond Success, Redefining the Meaning of Prosperity back in 2009. Uh, second edition came out in 2014. And I was speaking in a circuit for years on how to bring ethics into the capital market space. So they sometimes they'd be called spiritual capitalism conferences, they all different names. But basically, I was delving in this market before I knew what this market on our side would look like. So I knew what people on the other side wanted our business to look like, and they wanted more ethics and more values brought into Wall Street. But I didn't know what that would turn out to be. And then in 2014, I got introduced to a group of people who were making a film called Planetary, which came out on Earth Day in 2015. And that was Bill McKibben and Paul Hawk and Ron Garin, the astronaut, a group of indigenous elders. And they were focused on climate change a lot and how climate change was affecting our planet. I, I honestly didn't have a good lens into it, but I got taught by really the foremost experts who've been talking about it since the 70s. And to have an astronaut tell you that their view when they're looking at the Earth from outer space, it was changing rapidly over time. And to see some of the pictures from NASA that were part of that film, it really opened up my eyes. And I, I'd say in 2015, I made the commitment to turn my firm into ultimately, as of this year, 100% sustainable focused firm. We don't sell traditional models anymore. <laughs> that aren't ESG and sustainably focused. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And did the clients at the time you made that change? And, and the reason I guess I'm asking this is because I think a lot of advisors are aware of ESG strategies and understand that they can be, they're not going to necessarily lose in returns or they want, they could make that commitment. They're afraid to do it with their clients. Were, did you have, what kind of conversations did you have with your clients at the time to get them to come on board with you and change their portfolios over towards more sustainable portfolios? Yeah, so we use a very simple metaphor to explain it. And I think it's worthwhile giving you the metaphor. I think it's very, very, very helpful. And we've been asked to give this metaphor at probably 20 conferences now. But we use the GPS analogy. And we went to our clients and we said, look, we've been doing investing using an old map like you have in your glove compartment for years. And that old map, when you take a road trip, had a very static, backward-looking view of the trip that you were about to take. And today, when you take a road trip, you get in the car, you turn on your GPS, you get all this live data that is not necessarily map-related, but affects the map. You get weather reports, you get road closures, you get traffic information, you get cops hiding in the bushes even now on your mm -hmm. ways, uh, restaurants that are available along the route. So you get all this non-trip data, or we would call it non-financial data, is now available in the marketplace. And that data that underlies the GPS that's additive to the traditional financial information that you looked at before is basically what makes up ESG. And people confuse it. ESG is not a values conversation. It's a value conversation. ESG is looking for long-term value in companies by viewing non-financial metrics as well as financial metrics. And then in your GPS, right after you put in the address, you get this choice to pick 
route preferences. You can pick shortest route, fastest route, no toll road, scenic route. That's your own individual values that you're putting on top of the data. That's responsible investing or SRI or values-based investing. That's the client saying, on top of all this data that you're looking at to find the best company in any industry, including fossil fuel industry and airline industry and banking industry, I want to add to that and say, I also don't want to own any firearms. I don't want to own any tobacco. That's your personal choice. And that's on top of the ESG data. ESG data is too often misconstrued with the values conversation when it's only a value conversation. Mm -hmm. And then impact is the destination because impact is intentional and should be measurable. You should be able to measure if your money and investment is making the impact that you desire. So we align the destination with impact. And the impact is mostly done in private markets except in areas like municipal bonds, where you can do specific impact-related issues and some other like low-income housing investments and other things that you can do. But a lot of true impact is done still in the private market space. And did you have to convince these clients that this adjustment would not necessarily be a detriment to their returns? And in fact, would maybe, in your view, enhance them because you're taking into account these risks that maybe aren't showing up in the financials. I transitioned a $100 million book, my personal book. The, the firm obviously was larger, but I did my personal book over 18 months. And I had one conversation where the client looked at me and said, I don't care if you buy 100% weapons in my portfolio, as long as that's the best return. But if you're telling me that this will enhance my return, I'll go along with it. That was the only negative comment in probably a hundred conversations that mm -hmm. I had. And otherwise, look, I had a great market to go to, so I don't want to gloss over that fact. College professors in general are early adopters of everything. If you read Blink with Malcolm Gladwell, he said in that book that it was the best early adopter marketplace that you could find. Actually, college professors launched the original IRA. It was done through that market before it came traction. So it was a great market to be able to go to. And by keeping it as a data conversation, we depoliticized it. Too many people approach it from a green issue or a social issue. And when you start there, it can become a difficult conversation with some people. But we literally stuck to our guns that this was just more data and uh, the best example that you can give is in 1975, 85% of the S&P 500's value was based on financial metrics. And by 2015, 87% of the S&P 500's valuation was actually now based on non-financial data and metrics. You know, you think of Tesla, Google, any of these companies that don't have the financials to back up the stock price. So to us, it was an easy conversation. This is relevant data sets that are extremely important that should be included in your traditional financial view of your portfolios. And how do you construct your portfolios then? Is it uh, largely through uh, separately managed accounts and you're putting these together yourself or are you using so, any kind of investment 40X products? So we have mutual fund models that we started with back in 2017. They launched. Mm -hmm. We have two models, an ESG model that's just value-based and then we also have a fossil fuel-free model portfolio. And there's five iterations of each of those, from conservative to aggressive. And those are all 40 funds or ETFs that make up those portfolios. 
And then what we evolved in 2020 were the UMA platform. And I, I think this is where the industry is going, especially if Biden passes his capital gains tax um, bill. And our UMA structure is done with active, separately managed accounts. So it's SMA managers that have passed our ESG due diligence tests that fit our capital markets assumptions and basketed into a UMA, Unified Managed Account, so that the end client doesn't have to sign multiple contracts to do multiple SMAs in a portfolio. The UMA model, according to Cerulli, is the fastest growing model in the RAA marketplace right now. And, and again, that'll accelerate tremendously if the tax bills change. Yeah, for sure. Let me say, why do you think more advisors, you know, because we've heard about the ESG, the rise of ESG investing for years now. And it just seems that in the retail advisory space, there's a little bit of a slow adoption. We hear about the demand. We hear the demand is there. We hear millennials want it. We hear other certain investors want it. The advisors still, by and large, seem to be reluctant to jump in. Why is that? Yeah. Look, you have to look at the bulk of the advisor community. The bulk of the advisor community are pale, stale males who are closer to retirement than they are to the early days of working. They've got 10 years minimally right now of capital gains accumulation in models that you didn't have to work that hard to perform well over the last 10 years. The markets have been behind us and have been you know, certainly very friendly. And the idea that I'm going to kind of stop what I'm doing that's been working and do something different, human beings don't operate like that. I mean, the early adopter marketplace is about 6% of the population. And that's what you're seeing. You're seeing about 6% of advisors that have really taken a true adherence or adoption to ESG and sustainable investing. Getting from early adopter to early majority is a huge chasm. Most products fail before they get there. But what gets people there is education. And what you're seeing is the last 18 months, a huge interest in education or in self-education around ESG. I mean, we had 2,300 advisors attend our month-long ESG program that we did in March, which was just an ESG education platform. Two years ago, if I had 200, I would have been surprised. So we're seeing a huge growth in desire for education, and that always precedes actual movement. But also in the last six months, I don't talk to an advisory firm anymore that doesn't say, I've had some clients ask me about this. A year and a half ago, two years ago, I could still talk to 100 firms a month and have them say, no one's asking me about this. And it's just comfort. Human beings don't change unless they're really uncomfortable. So things that will change that will be more and more clear evidence like we're seeing of climate issues and social justice issues having a bearing on stock price. And, and that is happening. You know, the biggest impact we think is by far going to be climate issues. Two years ago, we didn't have the papers every day publishing climate articles. I, I remember calling the Wall Street Journal and saying, we're doing this conference, sustainable investment conference at the United Nations. Do you guys want to cover it? And the editor said to me on the phone, there will never be an article in the Wall Street Journal on climate change or sustainable investing ever. Now, wow. that clearly 
isn't true anymore, but it gives you a sense of where the headspace was even just two years ago. So we've seen a dramatic change in news coverage. I think if you look at Google tracks word searches, I think ESG has had this 1,800% spike in climate um, and impact investing over the past 18 months and appears in more news searches than most other terms at this point. Do you think that the pandemic has anything to do with that? Or is it more awareness of some of the environmental anomalies that we're seeing? The interesting thing about the pandemic to me is it initially woke advisors up to the fact that there could be shocks to the system that they're clearly not thinking about. There wasn't enough of a connection made to climate change, but more and more now you're reading that climate change will drive more, unfortunately, viral pandemic risk. But the fact that there was enough money pumped into the system so quickly that it offset any impact, it's difficult to say that really had a true impact on it. What I will say is that it's hard to pick up the paper right now and not see the drought in the West We're going to see 40 million people in the West have issues about access to water. That alone will change a lot of people's thinking about how the capital markets could be impacted by climate change. You know, the fact that it's not more of a frenzy to me is always shocking, but I'm an early adopter. So Mm -hmm. I'm always thinking about what's coming next. I'm not looking backwards. And there's fundamental issues happening in the U.S. It's no longer these emerging market or these Philippine islands. The Keys, if you read CNBC just today, had a whole meeting of the government saying that there's areas of the Keys that they're going to have to walk away from. They can't afford to raise the sidewalks enough right now. They can't afford to rebuild some of the homes that are still damaged from the 2019 hurricane. So we're, we're looking at New York City, I'm sorry, U.S. cities that are having to make tough decisions because of climate change. And uh, Seattle is having a heat wave. I think it's the first heat wave they've ever had. They're dealing with 95 degree temperatures. No one owns an air conditioner in Seattle. It's changing way more rapidly than a lot of people thought. It's interesting because at first, I think Al Gore did a huge disservice because he allowed, due to his movie, the idea of climate change to become politicized. And the the GOP jumped on it and it was smart marketing on their side, but it allowed something to be politicized that was never politicized. And George Bush Sr. ran his whole campaign on greenhouse gas emissions with Dan Quayle 30 years ago. But he also made some predictions in that about sea level rise that were not clear and have not come to manifest. And it's what most people who don't believe in climate change point to is that until the oceans are lapping up over the coastlines, I'm not concerned about it. But the biggest devastating impact of climate change has always been heat. More people die of heat-related deaths than any other weather-related incident globally. So it's always been heat that will continue to just exasperate as we're seeing record-breaking temperatures last week across the entire West. And the fires that have come along with that and the, all the everything. How does you watch that happening that you know that these are non-financial considerations that will impact uh, the capital markets? But how do you make the link? Is it simply a, I don't want to oversimplify it, but if you talk about water scarcity, for instance, would that be then maybe our portfolios tilt away from companies that need water, Coca-Cola or some others? Or how does that work? How do you, where do you tie the... 
a great example is just to look at PG&E for a minute. So when you look at PG&E, uh, most index funds that were ESG owned PG&E because it was converting the most number of customers to renewable energy by state mandate of any utility company in the U.S. Most active managers who were really reading through the ESG data and not just looking at a top line score from mm -hmm. a data provider saw disclosed in PG&E's own disclosure documents that their risk of fire due to droughts in California was so off the charts that there was no other utility on the planet that had the same risk that they had. They actually almost fell off an XY graph. That's how poor their performance was on that. So most active managers avoided PG&E because even though it was doing something really good, the risks due to climate change exacerbated any potential positive um, outcome of the company. So to me, that's a perfect example. Or if you want to own farmland, it's very easy to go through with farmland and say who owns water rights and who doesn't own water rights. So there are farms that are getting access to water where they don't actually own the rights to that water. And if somebody comes along and says, we're cutting back on the water supply in this region, those farms are the first that have to reduce their crop exposure because of that. If you look at the municipal bond industry and the mortgage industry, Today, available very easily through Street Easy, you can get a flood score on any single home in the United States. Through Risk, RESQ, a company that's owned by the New York Stock Exchange or ICE, you can get a climate VAR score, value at risk score, of every single QCIP in the United States today. Hmm. And you can look at two bonds and say, okay, there's a Rochester, New York hospital bond. It's 30 years, it's paying 4%. And there's a Tampa Bay, Florida hospital bond. It's 30 years. It's paying 4%. But there's a 8% VAR, value at risk of the future revenue of the Rochester bond. There's a 92% value at risk of the Tampa bond. And they're looking at heat exposure, migration due to climate patterns, flooding risk, sea level rise risk. It's a two-page spreadsheet on every single QCIP in the United States. What you saw over the past two years is Moody's, MSCI, S&P, Fitch, all started buying these data companies. Then Moody's came out last year and said, we're gonna start adding a climate rating. So they have their traditional rating on all their investments. Now they also have a climate rating. It's fascinating to me that they're not combining it yet. There's obviously some fear there in what they'll do to the market. Yet they all of a sudden take an A-rated bond down to a C-rated bond because of that risk. So what they're doing initially is just saying that bond's still A-rated, but if you look over here at their other rating, they've got a D climate rating. So it is maybe a slower adoption of those ratings into affecting the capital markets. But when everyone starts seeing the data change, it's always too late to get out of the way. So our point is, why would you want to own the Tampa bond when you're getting the same yield and same rating on the Rochester bond? with none of the risk. That's how we look at portfolio design right now. Yeah, that's a that's fascinating. And it led me to a question that I was gonna ask you about the data, because I think one of the things, criticisms of ESG data often is that it can be contradictory. And if someone ranks Tesla an environmentally friendly company because of the electric cars, but then ranks them environmentally not friendly because of all the power that they need to charge up those batteries, where do you fall out? How do you make that call? So because we use active managers, we want to understand first and foremost, what is the active manager's 
philosophy around ESG. Mm-hmm. We want to know from the get-go that they're not using top-line scores. So we refuse to work with managers that are just using a top-line score of a data company. You've got to have built your own metrics internally that takes in the data, not the scoring, and have a fundamental philosophy about how you're reviewing the data. What are you weighing social? What are you weighing governance? What are you weighing environmental? And what are the categories? And how do you make decisions about that? And then we want to be able to go all the way down to that manager and say, why are you holding this stock? So if we can't have those conversations, we don't want to be involved with that manager. And it used to be tough to have those conversations. When we started this in 2015, we call a manager and they'd say, well, that's part of the boardroom. That's black box. We'd literally get those answers. Now, everyone's afraid to give that answer. They understand that the world's viewing these things much more differently. So we get all the answers pretty much that we want, but it is nuanced with ESG data. Climate risk is not as nuanced. There's not a big discrepancy as much as some companies might want to lead you to believe. There's not much discrepancy at all on climate data over the last 30 to 40 years has narrowed tremendously in the forward-looking projections of that data. It used to be very wide 30 to 40 years ago, the last 30 to 40 years. It's almost like if you look at those hurricane forecasts and mm-hmm. you see the European model and the US model, all the models, and there's this wide gap, that's what it looked like 30 to 40 years ago. And now they've all kind of converged on the US model and you got a very narrow gap of where things are going. And we made a philosophical bet three or four years ago because we were talking to all the different scientists in the different, I'm not, I'm sorry, not all the scientists. We were talking to scientists in every vertical. So we literally talked to glacial scientists. We talked to oceanographers, uh, looked at acidification and everyone that we talked to said, shit's getting real. I don't know if I could say that on the podcast, but of course you can. Okay. So they said shit's getting real and our vertical is breaking down and it's breaking down pretty quickly. And Our belief was, because scientists have a very narrow vertical view, is that they were not looking at the cascading effects of all of these verticals breaking down at the same time, and that all the projections that we were looking at were going to be way shorter coming to fruition than people thought. And we saw in 2020, most of the Records that were broken in 2020 were predicted by these models to not break till 2050. So it was running 30 years ahead, just in that two-year window where we had made this determination that the physical risk aspects were going to break down a lot quicker than people thought. And unfortunately, it's the one time in my life where I really regret being right. Unfortunately, because it's accelerated that much in two years, It's just going to keep accelerating way quicker than people understand. And most people don't want to deal with a risk like that. You know, they rather literally ignore that and just go about their day-to-day business. But, you know, in Florida, everyone says right now, when should I sell in Florida? You get a lot of people saying that, even though there's still a lot of sales in Florida, you get a lot of people saying, when should I sell? And uh, when everyone's saying when, when it becomes when it's too late, because then everyone's rushing to the same door. Mm-hmm. So we, we want to be ahead of that. And so sounds, yeah, go ahead. I, I was going to say, and we don't think there's any aspect of being ahead of that that hurts alpha. 
because you're making a determination. We're not saying avoid a whole industry. We're saying if you're going to have municipal bonds, weight them towards ones that are in regions that aren't exposed to this risk. If you're going to hold mortgages, if you're going to hold REITs, you can do a 40-yard by 40-yard scan of your entire REIT portfolio through companies like 451, which is now owned by Moody's. So you could look at a whole REIT portfolio and say, okay, I have two REITs. They're both A-rated. They're both having the same yield. They both have kind of the same portfolio aspects, this much corporate, this much residential, this much retail. But this one has huge exposure to Houston downtown marketplace, which we know now year after year is exposed to ridiculous flooding that's just getting worse. And this REIT doesn't have that kind of VAR, that value at risk exposure. So I buy this one. That, that's all we're saying. And I, don't, I haven't had anyone come to me and say, I could prove to you that the one that has way more flood risk is actually going to be the more profitable portfolio. I mean, that's an absurd statement to make. So again, we're not saying, oh, go out and buy everything green. We're not making that kind of adjustment. We're saying buy BP because BP is making a commitment to convertible and renewable to renewable energy way faster than Exxon is. It's mm-hmm. just looking at comparisons between industries. And at the last thing I'll, I'll say, I'm sorry, is opportunistically also, when these managers are looking at climate risk, that specifically, it's not just who to avoid. They're looking at what are investments to make because of these risks. So an example would be like Wellington Asset Management owning a heating and air conditioning company because these areas that are being exposed to these really extreme heat waves in Europe and on the West Coast have a gross underexposure to air conditioning. Mm -hmm. And then add to that last year COVID where cooling centers in Europe that used to take in old people during the day, seniors during the day, because they don't have air conditions at home. So they'd run cooling centers, couldn't operate because of COVID. So what's going to happen there? I think the company they owned is up like 148% year over year. So it's also those types of opportunistic investments around climate that are making our portfolios perform so well. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And using the ESG data as a risk mitigation and opportunistic investing based on those non-financial criteria makes a lot of sense. And tell us a little bit about when you talk about the the values. You started this conference, the Sustainable Investing Conference at the UN, based around the the UN Sustainability Goals that were came out a while yep. ago. Yeah, yeah, the SDGs. Uh, yeah, what's the what's the thinking there? What uh, compelled you to begin that? So. The Sustainable Development Goals were agreed upon by 193 countries in 2015 to be the 17 most important goals, and there's 168 subset goals, but the 17 most important goals for our planet to remain habitable to the human race. I think people always make the people always say the planet's in trouble. The planet's never going to be in trouble. We're the ones that are in trouble. <laughs> but these goals it had such broad appeal and were to get 193 countries to agree on anything is incredible. So they, they had such an appeal to me, but they also have a need. The assessments are that there's two and a half to five trillion dollars a year of capital needed to achieve these goals by 2030. You know, frankly, it's unlikely a lot of these goals will be achieved by 2030, but the targets are it needs an enormous amount of capital to fuel renewable energy in third world countries, to 
fuel reconstruction of sustainable infrastructure that is failing. Our water infrastructure in the United States is 50 to 70 years old and obvious by headline risk in Newark and uh, Flint, Michigan, and, and all different places. There, there's a huge amount of investment that needs to be made. And we believed that we would wake up to the reality that that investment absolutely had to be made, whether or not the administration even supported it, because we made this you know, commitment years ago. And thankfully, you saw companies like BlackRock and Larry Fink and his letter to CEOs. You, you saw company after company sign on to the PRI, the Principles for Responsible Investing, which is supported through the UN, and make commitments to support these goals. So there's a lot of money, which means there's a lot of new technology that's going to come out of all of this, whether it's battery storage or uh, better solar panels. There's just a, to us, an incredible investment opportunity in doing good, that, that you can do well by doing good, and that eventually the risks would look so bad that we would have to come together to financially support the solutions. That, that was our thesis. And the UN made the statement back in 2014, a few years before we held our first conference in 18, that they were now of the realization that if they didn't engage with the private markets, they call us the private markets, that if they didn't engage with the private market corporations, they would never find the capital to solve the problem. So historically, they had just worked with NGOs and governments, mm-hmm. but they, they came to the understanding that they had to bring the corporate markets in. And I was asked in 2017 if I would lead the asset management industry to the UN to get a better understanding of these risks and how we can cooperate with NGOs and governments to start to solve some of these problems. And we had 700 uh, people come to the UN and most of the large asset management firms uh, came and there were really strong partnerships that formed out of that conference. PIMCO did something very big with the UN. So it, it definitely moved the needle a bit, thankfully. That's great. Uh, it seems like a lot of what motivates your work is climate concern. What about the other, you know, the S and the G? Does that factor into what you do at all? Where do you come down on the need for boardroom diversity or excessive CEO pay or any of these other kinds of potential landmines in a corporate in a corporation's future that uh, yeah. you want to be aware of. So ESG does a really good job of looking at that information. Uh, what it hasn't done is done a good job of looking at climate risk. So to us, ESG is fundamental to our core and social justice issues to us are secondary, but quite close to climate risk. And there's unfortunately a deep connection and link between climate change and social justice issues because the people that can't afford to move are the people that are going to be most impacted by climate change. It's not just that, though. Most of the migration that we're seeing coming to the border is not for crime-related concerns. Mm -hmm. The majority of the migration that we're seeing up through South America is because subsistence farming due to extensive droughts and heat waves in South America over the last you know, five to 10 years has driven these people out of their homes. That migration is one of the single biggest issues that our industry and even the climate change industry 
And all the climate data is not accurately looking at. You know, when you realize that we're moving families out of the, some of the deltas in New Orleans, some of the districts around Louisiana, because the, the rivers there are rising faster than any place on the globe. They're losing about a football field of land to the river uh, every 90 seconds at this point. So they're already moving some groups. A lot of groups don't want to move. They just keep building their homes higher and higher on stilts, but they've come up with the funding to move them if they'll accept moving. So we're dealing with these migration issues, which always affect the poor the most. So we understand there's an intricate tie-in, but climate change is driving that. And we saw that in COVID, unfortunately. It's the people that are living in areas where air pollution is the worst, where there's not access to good food and healthy food, where there's a McDonald's on every corner. Those communities suffered the most from COVID. And it is integral to climate risk. So to us, while climate change is a slight lead because climate change could take us all out, secondarily, that is, if we don't deal with the social justice issues around it, we're also going to be in big trouble. And I don't know if you've heard the term social cost of carbon, but you know, people talk about a carbon tax. Obama had originally promoted a social cost of carbon that had built into a carbon tax the fact that some social groups were overly harmed by the production of carbon, carbon and that had to be compensated for. And thankfully, the Biden administration is back to looking at a social cost of carbon. But we think ultimately, look, ultimately you have to have a carbon tax because the markets will not move on their own. They, they need an incentive. And the risks are never enough because the market always thinks they can step out of the way of the risk fast enough, even though we know from every crash we've seen that that's not true. But then as long as the government bails you out, it doesn't matter. So we need a market incentive. And the Commodities Futures Trading Board came out in 19, which was led by Bob Litterman from Kipos Capital, and he ran the chaired the committee, that it is the single biggest move we could make to start addressing what they said is the biggest risk to the capital markets is climate. And this was a bipartisan commission. They had to agree 100% on every issue that was put out in that report. They had fossil fuel executives as part of the commission, and they came out in full support of a carbon tax. But more importantly, all of these executives, of course, all these industries and both sides of the aisle came out and said that the biggest risk to the capital markets right now is climate change. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems that you're, the way you're approaching ESG, that maybe shareholder activism isn't something that plays into your strategy that much, right? Because if you're tilting away from companies that would need the kind of activism you're talking about, you don't own them anyway. So what is there to do in the boardroom? Do you engage in shareholder activism at all? And So we do through our managers. Um, yeah. Because we hold active managers and not passive funds, yep. we do yep. get true shareholder engagement. And we actually report on our impact reporting quarterly, the shareholder engagement that's taking place, because it doesn't all happen you know, in a public proxy fight like with Exxon a couple of weeks right. ago. A lot of this engagement happens behind the scenes and never gets to a proxy vote. And we work with Federated Ermies. Their EOS team is probably the biggest shareholder engagement team in the world at this point. Okay. And those reports that come out of how they're working with companies to actually shift them 
is what allows us to hold companies within the portfolio that sometimes from first look, you might not hold. But I'll give you, I've said this at a number of conferences, even five years ago, they're reporting regularly now, whether it's any of the mutual fund reporting agencies on the fact that ESG ETFs are outperforming their benchmark over the past few years. And, And you can read that in tons of papers. And what I've said for five years is that we shouldn't even be reporting on that because there's a skewing when you create a a new index that ranks the top performers and underweights the bottom performers, you get a temporary skew to the upside on a portfolio like that. But if you understand the industry well enough, no one is sitting idly by saying, I'll let Coke be the leading ESG sustainable company. And as Pepsi, I'm just not going to care about the issue. These guys are seeing these data reports come out all over the place. Mm -hmm. In the C-suite, in every company, large company right now, there's a sustainability officer that holds a very big position. They used to be in the basement by the stapler with the guy from (laughs) office space. So what's going to happen? These bottom 25% that all these indexes are underweighting, they're going to figure it out. I mean, anytime you have a weighting system or a grading system, somebody figures out how to game the system. So whether they'll actually do it legitimately over time, initially they'll figure out how to game those data reports and they'll start improving and they'll have to get added back into the index. And because they're improving faster than they're adding back in, there'll be an acknowledgement in the industry. And what I'll bet will happen, I could be wrong, but what I'll bet will happen is the non-ESG indexes will start to outperform over the next five years, the ESG indexes, because it's just a top line score. And companies are understanding that you have to care and that the consumers and investors both care and it, you can't ignore it anymore. So if there's not a way, if it's not a quantitative index that allows for improving scores to be weighted back into the index, And if it's just a a one-a-year view of whether the data score changed or not, those indexes will start to underperform. It's why we believe in active management. We think the issues are too complex right now and too dynamic to just... This would be my best example. If I gave you a GPS, but then I told you you had to drive to Florida every month for the next 12 months for work, and you can only use January's GPS report. You couldn't rerun the GPS on February, March, April, May. So if there were new road closures, if there was new traffic, you had to ignore all that and you had to take the same route for the next 12 months. And then in January, you could rerun the GPS and take that route again. That's what a passive index is doing with this data. If it was very slow moving data, fine, but it's yeah. not. The data is moving way too quickly. Yeah. And more of it's coming. Oh, yeah. Um, every day. Where are we with the SEC's initiatives to increase a corporate disclosure on some of these? It, we're close, and they've been working on it for way longer than they're acknowledging. This was They moved way too quick to say that this was a complete administrative shift. So they were obviously working with Europe and some of the European regulators and SASB and GRI on some of these structures probably for the past two years or so, I would imagine. So <laughs> I think we'll see an adoption of SASB and TCFD disclosures pretty quickly. And I think more importantly for the RIA and advisor community, the SEC has come out with very specific guidelines on their audit going into this year, their audit inventory, that they're looking at 
not only just ESG in general, but they're literally going to be looking at RAs to see whether you're prepared for climate change. I mean, that's a fascinating development in a very quick period of time. If you're an RA office that's located in the Keys, and we know we're having severe flooding issues, what's your backup? What's your cloud storage look like? What's your relocation plan? How do you get all the hard data protected? Do you have client files in there? All of these climate questions are now part of the audit process. And as well, they also want to know, if you say you're doing ESG, can you prove it? I want to see your diligence file. They're not saying that they'll determine what ESG is, Mm -hmm. but they are saying that if you say you run a fossil fuel-free portfolio, I want to look under the hood of that portfolio, and I want to see your diligence files of how you're making sure that is constantly being reviewed. So it's a huge shift. In Europe, I don't know if you've heard this, but in Europe, they are starting to demand that advisors ask every single client they meet with what their sustainability focus is. Can you Mm -hmm. imagine if they did that in the U.S. tomorrow? So things are- It's a requirement for advisors to ask every client. Yes, it's a new requirement in Europe as part of their um, new policies. Yeah, interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah, I I can't imagine that happening here. No, I can't either. But I couldn't imagine the SEC doing climate audits of RA firms a year ago yeah, either. So. But speaking, I mean, we, we had an administration change. I know that there were some SEC commissioners who were pretty skeptical of ESG and managed to do their best to keep them out of pension funds, or you couldn't refer to them as ESG. You had to be a only a financial metrics were allowed. Right. Uh, you think that's that's changing too with the new administration? Yeah, I mean, the they said initially that they would ignore the past DOL regulation that said that you couldn't look at ESG unless it was pecuniary. So it had to be a financial payoff for you to be able to look at it in the portfolio. They originally said they were going to ignore that. First, they said we'd probably ignore that. Then they actually came out and said they're going to ignore that. So these funds were free to do it. But now they're actually looking at passing regulation that actually says that you need to look at ESG data. Now, look, that could change next administration. So two years mm-hmm. from now or a year from now, we could see that shift. Certainly um, in the next presidential election, we could see that shift. But to me, even through the whole Trump administration, momentum was building on ESG regularly. And the trend ran away from any concept that an administration could come in and resist that. And, and once BlackRock and State Street and Fidelity all signed on to these goals and, and the PRI guidelines, there's just no turning back on this right now. So certainly there could be regulatory lessening of some of the focus on it, but the business case for it, the horse is out of the barn at this point. That's fantastic. Jeff, this has been great. We've gone a bit above and beyond the time that we asked of you, so I appreciate it. Thank you very much for that. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, My pleasure. Where can people uh, find you? Any kind of coordinates you want to? Yeah, so GittermanWealth.com is our website and GittermanAsset.com um, is our outsourced CIO services. Our TV show, The Impact, is at FinTech, F-I-N-T-E-C-H dot TV. And that show <laughs> streams regularly. And uh, we will be doing a climate-focused ESG conference live in New York City, September 9th and 10th at the Javits Center. Okay. for details to come soon. In person? Yes, in person. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, Jeffrey, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thanks, David. And you've been listening to the Advisor Innovations Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member of FINRA SIPC. 
LPL Financial is a separate entity from and not affiliated with wealthmanagement.com.